right namaste everyone welcome to the charvak podcast uh, in the tradition of the charvak podcast of going to somebody else's house and taking over their house and making it their own studio is continuing and even as i am about to leave canada uh, i reached out to daniel you don't need to uh, you know be confused about yes i am with the but most famous canadian right now on indian television da- daniel uh, boardman uh, Doing well. Thanks for having me. And uh, today we're going to be talking about a book. Uh, the book is called Honking for Freedom, and I have the author with me, Benjamin Dichter. Benjamin, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I'm going to start with this. Okay, Benjamin, this is your first time on the podcast. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah. Okay. My name is Benjamin Dichter. I am the author of this uh, wonderful book. And this is the story of the Freedom Convoy, the Canadian Trucker Convoy, to which I was the um, uh, the spokesperson. I did the media strategy and a lot <laughs> solved a lot of problems behind the scenes, uh, as well as I've uh, run for parliament in Canada. I'm an entrepreneur, done a, a bunch of things throughout my life. And um, just I want to start with opening this book with the endorsement on the back of the book, which I was quite proud of. And it reads, the Canadian trucker protest in Ottawa attracted tremendous national and international attention and was simultaneous, simultaneously demonized by then-Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his cronies in the legacy media, the minions at the CBC, first and foremost among them. What really happened, Benjamin J. Dichter, integrally involved from the beginning, Let's his readers in on the story, story one that all Canadians should know, Jordan B. Peterson. So thank you, Jordan, for that. So honkingforfreedom.com if you want to get a copy of it, and we'll talk a little bit about it. So let's start here. Why did you decide to write this book? I had a um, suspicion understanding how our political class works in Canada and in the United States, many parts around the world that somebody had to come out and tell the truth of what happened. And I wanted to get it on the record as quickly as possible. And I think I've been proven correct. We did have a commission since the convoy that was completely orchestrated, which is not uh, uncommon. And other books have been written about the convoy that are completely political. They're apologist books for certain political parties. I didn't want to go in that direction. I wanted people to know the truth of how we unified the country, we brought everybody together, and how that can be done in places across the world when the media and the political class get out of the way. You know what happens? We all figure out a way to find each other and unify. I'll, I'll hey. say, uh, from my perspective, so alternative media, I was covering the Freedom Convoy there, and he ran the media strategy. And I think the best thing that that was done that, that I think people take notice of is we, the Freedom Convoy was successful because he banned mainstream media from covering it. <laughs> they went crazy. They went crazy. <laughs> like uh, Glenn McGregor of CCT was like outside the door, like, let me <laughs> in. So like li- literal Eric Andre meme, like, let me in. And then one of our other friends, like Salman Sima, refugee from Iran, Freedom, he's like, no, you're fake news, get out. <laughs> like, and like called him, he's like, no, so you see like this, like this Iranian refugee, like kicking CTV out of the thing. But because mainstream media couldn't be there, they couldn't. One, it drew lots of alternative media, so National Telegraph, Post Millennial, Epoch Times, all the other people covering it, we could get huge followings. But they also couldn't destroy it because the way they destroy these movements in the media is 
you saw when they stopped listening to Ben and they did a big press conference and invite the mainstream media in. The same Glenn McGregor just started heckling and started yelling, where are the guns? You do this, do this. And then it just turned into chaos. But when the mainstream media isn't there, they can't bring their cameras. They can't push everyone out. And then they can't have that those clips that they edit and take out. He's like, that's their economy. So if they were if they were inside the room, they would just start heckling. And then they take different clips and whatever and use that in their uh, coverage. But because you couldn't give them that, or he didn't give them that, they they had, they couldn't smear any of the press conferences where they weren't at. So let, let's so let's back up a little bit. Yeah. So how did I ban the legacy media from our press conferences? Well, I went to Twitter and I said I I think I tagged the Toronto Star and the CBC, maybe the Globe and Mail as well, the major news publications here. And I said, you know, you're now banned and you're just not welcome. We don't want you here. And I knew if I utilized the infrastructure of alternative media, I could go. I was trying to aim for 100 million views that first week. And I got pretty close to it. That's why I went global. And the way I baited them to talk about it, because the media was the legacy media was quite quiet about it. You know, so they were trying to ignore this thing, running cover for Trudeau. You just ignore uh, a movement. Hopefully it goes away. So what I did is I had a long list of media contacts in alternative and legacy media from other stuff I'd done in the past. And I sent an email inviting anybody who wanted to participate in our press conferences could submit a request to attend, but we had very limited space, which legitimately legitimately we did. So as soon as I put that email out, this mass email to everybody in the media saying, if you want to attend our press conferences, submit a request immediately, I think it was the Globe and Mail, within like 30 seconds, responded and said, yes, we want to attend. And that was my little, you know, my 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 little uh, time of, uh, you know, spiritual enlightenment where I got to respond to each one of them and say, I'm sorry, we don't recognize you as a credible news agency. Thank you for your interest, but you are not permitted to attend. And I just said that over and over again to each one of them. And they went crazy that's when they started reporting on us the next day. I knew I would bait those morons into talking about us, and they did. And the next day it was, oh, white supremacists and, you know, hateful truckers or whatever. I'm like, perfect. That's exactly what I wanted. It's uh, it was it was it was a, it was a fun time to to be. It was freezing cold. Everyone was there, but together, it's it, it was a it was a beautiful moment in Canadian history. It was like every day was, or at least the weekends were like Canada Day. It was the it was like the unit unifying holiday that we hadn't had in years. Um, and yeah, and then the media just going nuts. And like you know, I saw stories like near the end of it where like when I was like chronicling and live streaming, like, you know, the, the fall of Wellington, I was like the police come and beat people. And I'm showing protesters just like singing Oh Canada, backing up. Some of them get like pulled behind the line for doing nothing and beaten. But you saw the media behind the cops and they would just watch it. And then they get these little clips of when people get grabbed, they would get little clips and then not the, the beatings or whatever. Um, but then they just did this whole counting thing of like, well, 50 arrests, 60 arrests, 70 arrests, 75 arrests, 76, right? Just to make it like, oh, it's so violent, just reporting the arrests. But if you could see them, and I, I could watch the media, watch what's going on, and they could see that like, okay, these people are not like being violent. They're just like singing O Canada and getting pepper sprayed. And then like some of them are getting randomly grabbed and thrown. Like there was, there was a guy who got beaten up and I just heard the story off and like people were just like beaten up and dumped like an hour or two outside of Ottawa. 
like held for two hours and dumped an hour to outside Ottawa, hoping they just go away. Some of them like journeyed back and like came in. There was a guy with like bruises on his face that I had seen around. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. But again, the legacy media, just they're government funded, they're subsidized. They rallied during the emergencies act to uh, quash any sort of dissenting narrative. There was the famous lady got trampled by a horse. Friend of ours got the footage that Beth Bassett, the post millennial, she was covering it. She has the footage of the trampling and she also has this footage of the guy who they claimed threw a bike and started it she has the footage of like what happened with that bike and it's so clearly well here let me let me right. tell a more detailed story about this because i was dealing with it at the time so there was somebody in the legacy media by the way conservative legacy media so this is the problem of the uniparty is just that it's not about blue versus red uh, versus red uh, they all suck and they work together so in this particular case a journalist reported on the trampling the horse trampling uh candace and uh, he was there he was standing right in front of it watching and that day or sorry that day they released the story that day got through his editor and it was published in the next uh, edition of the newspaper and was published online he then got a call from two cabinet members from within trudeau's party telling him you need to change the story and he said, what do you mean I need to change the story? Well, there was a bicycle that scared the horses, and that's why they trampled. This is the level of intelligence of our members of parliament. This is how stupid they are. They're crowd control horses. They're trained <laughs> not to react to bicycles or crowds or whatever. Like, you morons, right? <laughs> yeah. But they persisted. He got two calls, and he said, you know, to his credit, no, I'm not changing the story. That night, he got a call from the senior editor of this conservative publication he works for. You need to change the story. So I'm not changing the story. I was there. I watched it. I know what happened. No, I, you have to. Said He wouldn't back down. The next morning, a Saturday morning, he got a call from the CEO of the company. You need to change the story. And he said, listen, you're in charge of the company. You can do what you want. Uh, I'm not changing the story. You want to remove the story? That's up to you. But I'm not going to lie to my readers. So what was the solution from legacy media? You know what they did? They got two other journalists. I call them whores. And they wrote fake stories to say some people that were on site didn't notice the bicycle that scared the horses. So there's... There's different accounts of what actually happened, and so Beth, it's really Beth, it's, it's undeterred. At the time, there was video of what happened with the bicycle. Beth from the post had actually caught it. That's like right. it, it, there's definitive evidence that their their story was a lie. There was no scary bicycle. But incident. the the lesson in all of this yeah. is this is how deceptive legacy media is on all sides. I want to touch upon one topic first. Very interesting to me is that you actually canceled the ones who cancel. So because by making sure that some elements of the media don't enter, you guys actually cancel the ones who usually cancel. So you you gate kept the gatekeepers in, in, in a very interesting way. Exactly. So, so do you think that's right? Of course, there's a reason for that. Because, look, I've been in media scrums before many times. What's, what would have happened? If we had the, and I was proven right by the example oh, he, he, he was, he gave. He, he, he absolutely proven. The second they deviated from his media strategy, it all went to shit. So I knew 
we would, if we hosted legacy media to our press conference, and I wasn't going to do 15 minutes. I did two and a half hours long. I exhausted them till the media, the media that was there couldn't come up with more questions because we had nothing to hide. So I knew if I had brought them in, we would have a crew for each camera. So CBC, for example, would come in with one of their you know cameras from the 1980s that takes half the floor space. They would have a camera person and a reporter. They wouldn't ask us questions. They would make assertions and smear us as racist, bigot, whatever, which we all saw. And they would take up half the floor space. And then you know what else, Kushal? They wouldn't get any views. <laughs> so where's the upside? Mm-hmm. There's no upside in that. But bring in a bunch of idiots that are going to call us names and don't have an audience. Like the, 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 <laughs> the, the, that. The, the, this mentality is ridiculous. Like I, it's the same thing when, like, when trying to talk with Jewish organizers to an event, and be, and they'll be like, "Okay, we need to do this, and maybe we need to. I'll call someone from CTV and see if they can come cover it." Why? So five people can read about it, so you can tell your friends you're on CTV. Like, try and get someone with actual internet influence who 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 can like pr- like. The people are online. No one is reading a random article in legacy media about an event you're running for whatever. Like this isn't 1983. Like, and you know, what's very interesting about all of this, this mentality is, you know, as Daniel explained in one example, they abandoned this strategy and they went to legacy media and they did exactly what I said. And after that, I asked them on like, Oh yeah, how'd that go? (laughs) <laughs> went well, didn't it? Right, disaster. and it because, happened in the exact way you said. Like, uh, like alternative media set up early in there, and then the 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 people came and the hotel people, and then we were all moved around so they could get better stuff with their things. And so I was I was just in England. I was on Lotus Eaters, and I was on Trigonometry. And one of the programs I did on Lotus Eaters is called Brokenomics, a macroeconomics show, and we did part one of uh, the convoy, everything that happened, and then part two, everything that has happened since. And it's no coincidence that the people who sabotaged us from the inside, who have ties to the political class, were obsessing every day, we have to go to legacy media. And I kept arguing with every time they're like, oh, we have to have a press conference every day. And I said two things. Firstly, what's the hostage taking? Yeah. No. (laughs) And secondly, you all complain that the legacy media does nothing but lie to you, yet you're chasing them. For what? For them to lie? Like, think about the logical disconnect from it. And what I was hoping for with this strategy was to show the world you don't need legacy media. It has run its course. It's a, there's a reason their business model no longer functions and all those companies are bankrupt and dependent on government subsidies. And now government laws to screw us over. Because they're nothing but propaganda outlets and they're ineffective ones. I mean, yeah, they suck. And like they they are the big lobbies for these bills in Canada, C-11 and C-18, which are censorship laws, like the online restricting streaming, the reason why you can't see news on Facebook and soon to be Google. Uh, Bell Rogers all lobbied for this, lobbied hard for this. Um, these, they have an army of lawyers so they can circumvent that they can, they're fine being regulated by the CRTC to make, they already make garbage content. So who cares if a bureaucrat makes their garbage content even worse online, right? They they already suck. But if their competition is now subjected to CRTC oversight, if I have to submit my scripts to them about anything, I'm going to say political, if I want to be monetized in Canada, like then my content's going to suck. It's corporate welfare for the propaganda class. Yeah. And it needs to stop. I have a question here. 
um and this comes from an indian perspective now in india vaccine is not an issue to be very honest you weren't mandated to get them right yeah we were not mandated to get it so but my question is different um i know there was no mandate in india and it is not even an issue in india because in indians if you look at the numbers by and large indians are pretty much pro vaccine and and outside of one or two districts in india which is in kerala one being malappuram which is anti vax um uh, i don't i don't see and and correct me if i'm wrong indians if it's not malappuram and if it's something else I, i could be i could have you know misremembered the name or something but like the the truckers protest for me was presented like your book doesn't show that by the way but the truckers protest to me sitting in india was presented as some people who are anti vax influenced by american propaganda <laughs> of course i got yeah. well here firstly uh Of course you can read that um or see that from legacy media because as I just explained all they do is lie right it's just narrative poisoning is what they're engaged in uh, I'm vaccinated by the way and Canada is not an anti-vax society but what we were against is the mandates the lack of choice like what happened to all all the lefties my body my choice what happened to that right all of a sudden they're they're pro uh, borders they're they're against my body my choice i think this needs and to the other order. the other issue is uh for me was the arrive can app the data tracking that's yeah. what i was very concerned about and i explained this on tucker carlson when i first used it i'm in my truck i only had to use it one time actually this was just before the convoy the day or two days before i went was at the border fuck i used it more than you because i used it every time i travel to india yeah well truckers didn't really it wasn't enforced but anyways that's another issue i came up to the booth and i had i had it on a second phone a separate phone that only had a wifi connection on a router to the us so it didn't have a sim card in it even nothing just a sec- separate phone and i came up to the booth and i didn't know what to do so i give my passport and my documents for reentering with a load and at the same time i'm holding my phone and i said to the guy uh, the cbsa officer i said do you need my phone like have my had the qr code ready cuz i want to see what happened and he said to me no i said no he said yeah the the system detects when you're in a certain proximity to the booth and all your information comes up on the computer and we can see that you're here before you can so don't worry i don't have to scan the qr code and i thought as i said on tucker carlson whose face went you know he does that turns his mm. face and i said maybe i'm just crazy but the first thing that popped into my head is well what happens if that's in every police cruiser every government office every public transit thing well now you have a full surveillance society that's what i was really concerned about what this would lead to yeah i mean so on the vax issue because again indians were mandated there's another level to what happened in canada with the gaslighting it became a political thing and and mm-hmm. a tool of malice and oppression so again i got vaccinated twice i never got boosted because whatever um a lot of it for just you know whatever reason peace in the family so my family would be quiet i don't think the vaccines a genocide of whatever fool me twice but yeah. three times three that's times. that's not going to no happen. but it was yeah. like but i i, I wouldn't you. i wouldn't use my vaccine passport i wouldn't show my papers to go in and buy a sandwich i only used it to go visit my brother's family when he had a kid because okay that was my you know okay it was worth it for that but 
we were promised about goods. We were told, you know, get vaccinated, like over 80% of Canadians get vaccinated by choice. And then instead of saying, let's open up, you know, we've done it. No more mandates, no more lockdowns. It was papers, please. We need to see your papers. And then instead of opening up, they launched this crusade against the unvaccinated. They basically made the case, you can't go outside your house because there's still unvaccinated people roaming around. Like we're going to not have a society until we track down everyone's crazy uncle with a tinfoil hat and make sure that he gets the new vaccine. Like you just have to let some people go and do what they want sometimes. Like, you know, you can't vaccinate 100 percent of a population ever because there's some crazy obstinate people who will just be obstinate no matter what. There's people who didn't get the vaccine that if you to- if the government said don't get this vaccine it's terrible they would be getting a vaccine every day right because so you just like the the thought that we're not going to have a country until we can sit down and reason with all these people and and make sure they get vaccinated but it's like we reached a thing covid wasn't killing people and it was more and more authoritarian pushes right the arrive can stuff is crazy what was going on the border the mandates and the the trucker protest was the most successful one because if you track Doug Ford so Doug Ford's the conservative uh, who put in the most draconian laws during um, this Uh-oh, whole thing. Oh, they're not going to like you for saying that. They don't like me already anyway. <laughs> but if, if you look at that, he was very clear in January of 2022 or whatever. Or whatever yeah, January 2022, the science was clear. Science trademark Dr. Fauci was very clear. You are going to need a booster shot added to your vaccine passport for safety. If not, there could be calamity. This was science. Two weeks later, BJ and his uh, friends show up. They honk at the prime minister for a little bit. After a couple of days of honking, good news. Doug Ford is con- has 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 learned there's new science. Trade doc, Dr. Fauci, and the new science has now said that actually, you know, um, vaccine passports have a negligible effect on the spread, and we might be ready to phase them out. So they all like after during the freedom convoy, all the premiers sort of said, okay. Um, we're now going to look at a program in a couple months to take them out. They didn't want to remove them immediately because then it would be a direct win. And then the truckers could say we did something, but they, after they crushed the freedom convoy, they decided like, we're going to have one more month of fake lockdown and then we'll open it up and pretend that, oh, if we had just waited another month, see, it was going to open up anyway. That was the thing. But if you were listening to what the, the expert scientists were saying in Canada, pre-convoy, during convoy, post-convoy, uh, the by Canadians sitting in front of uh, Parliament and honking the horns a few times, we legitimately changed the science. We affected the molecules and atoms in the air and and changed the very nature of the coronavirus uh, am- amazingly. And vaccine passports and and booster shots, really amazing stuff. How the the I guess the the vibration, vibrational frequency of of a few horns can can modify chemistry and physics. But that's uh, that's what happened. If you believe the Canadian government? I have a question over here. So you know, India, or uh had these absurd night lockdowns. Yeah, yeah, please, please. <laughs> the government's afraid of the dark? Yeah, yeah. So, so suddenly at 10 p.m. in the night, yeah. uh, coronavirus becomes active. <laughs> it's <laughs> nocturnal. Like Quebec. Like a raccoon, yeah. yes. No, no, they learn from us. Yeah. Those motherfuckers learn from us. <laughs> India was the front runner in night lockdowns. We fucking would tell COVID, okay, you're getting the fuck out in the day. You come back in the night, you ask. It's a vitamin D thing. It's like, take some vitamin D. Like, as long as you're in the sun, it can't hurt you. So, what to me, when I, listen, you know, when you become famous, you get to meet people. And when you get to meet government people, these are good people, by the way. I'm not saying that these government people are bad people or anything. And I would ask them, what the fuck are you guys doing? 
and the answer i would get is we have to show that we're doing something <laughs> yeah yeah that that's that's what got us into this in the first place is that there's some truth to that politically right when coronavirus hit you saw politicians everywhere like people get scared and then they want to see that someone's doing something so we just instituted laws and 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 and, and lockdowns and this and that these people would get scared the media would feed into this hysteria and then politician big daddy doug ford justin trudeau whoever it was would come in and say don't worry i'm doing something i'm going to make sure that um that half of the grocery store aisles are blocked off so you can buy you can buy fruits and vegetables but you can't buy t-shirts these are the new covid measures and my aunts would be like oh good he's saving us good Yay. Oh, I mean, if you saw some of the DMs in the, in the family chat over like my most COVID hysterical aunt going on an airplane. <laughs> also, the, the thing is, never, uh, I never underestimate the potential incompetence of people in government. Uh, government in general has become so bloated that it's become an entity onto itself and it's full of people who are trying to figure out how to justify. Uh, their job because things are so uh, grossly inflated at this time, at this point. And you also have people that are, they feel like they're victims of the machine because the machine is so big. Uh, the uniparty is so big. They don't, they feel constricted. You know, I have members of parliament that were reaching out to me on all sides and saying like, I wish I could do something. I'm thinking about leaving Canada. Like you're elected. <laughs> There's a reason you're in charge. Yeah, but I might lose my job. Well, suck it up. That's what you have to do. Oh, you well, have the, parliamentary immunity, you pussies. Do the, something. That's and and that's the system behind it. You know, I talk about when I I live stream fairly regularly now when I'm not in the truck. And this is the the system that's behind the scenes is what's causing so many of the problems where people are within the system. They don't know how to push back against it. And everybody's looking at each other saying, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to I'll do what you do. It's like any sort of, you, you know you're being infiltrated, like during the convoy. I knew we were being infiltrated. I just didn't know exactly where it was coming from. Fog of war, a million things going on, trying to piece it all together. But you could always pick out the political subverters because as soon as somebody had to make a decision, what would their response be? Oh well, we should we should set up a, a subcommittee for this. There's three people in the room. <laughs> you, you want a subcommittee of two? What's wrong with you, right? And that's the mindset of people who are in politics. And in my stream, I talk about you know we hear this this phrase often through American uh, let's say alternative media. This phrase, deep state. What is the deep state? People always think, oh, it's the CIA, deep province. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's not the CIA. I mean, it's, this one one guy says in Canada, oh, the CIA is watching me. It's a foreign country, mm, moron. No, yeah. but what the deep state is, and we're all dealing with it all over the world. It's a combination of government bureaucracy, big political donors, people who fund proxy organizations, and the bought off media. Those three entities together, that is the deep state. And that is who's controlling the country. So when through Omar, polling organizations and, and data and focus groups a lot, but yeah. So when Omar Algebra, well, yeah, that's that's part of the bureaucracy. Yeah. When Omar Algebra, who was previously denied entry into the United States because of terrorism concerns, 
because he was a supporter of Hamas and Hezbollah and Hezbollah um, becomes the minister of transportation and locks down Canada's border during COVID. Yes, that is the clown world of Canada. A guy who was denied entry to the U.S. for terrorism concerns became our minister of transportation. It's not him that makes the decision. He's an ass clown. He's just the face they put up to be the punching bag. It's the bureaucracy behind him that puts together all these strategic plans to administer the government. And they meet with the minister occasionally, say, okay, we're doing this, this, this. And he says, okay, sounds good. And then that's it. That's the system we live in. It's really dangerous that there are all these unaccountable senior level bureaucrats within our countries who hold the power, and it's time we start doxing them. People need to know their names, who they are, what their positions are, and what influence they have in government, because we don't do that, it's never going to stop. I mean, it's only being reported in Indian media. Like, who, well, wrote a letter Hardip, who, who, who wrote the letter to get Hardip Singh Najjar into our country after he was denied right. on his regular passport, and then he was denied on his fake marriage, and then he somehow got in, and... You know, and then in the Indian government accused a liberal minister who is on the record writing a letter of recommendation for a Pakistani gangster uh, after he pled guilty to to this. So th he has a a history of 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 writing letters of recommendation for people with. Uh, you know, oh, you're just an Indian agent. I'm just an Indian agent. By yeah. the way, can I make fun of Pakistani gangsters for a second? I just found out something last week from somebody in law enforcement. He said, "I'll give you a tip. You know who the Pakistani gangsters are?" I said, "Who?" They drive really expensive cars that always break down because they're too cheap to service them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like a car they're paying like $2,000 a month on a lease or whatever. They'll never get an oil change. And then the car dies on the highway. He said, you know how many times we've been tracking somebody mm -hmm. and the way we just do our surveillance, we just wait for his car to break down. <laughs> That's crazy. Now, now one more charge that was laid against the trucker's convoy was it was led by a bunch of white supremacists right. so now how white supremacist t are you apparently very you know i explained this on my interview with constantine and francis uh in england on trigonometry i, I mean i didn't know i didn't learn much white supremacy in the first 13 years of hebrew school <laughs> but apparently i did i don't know it's just it's hysterical look this is the basket of smears that are used just to end a conversation. It's a persuasion tactic to try to convince other people to just uh, ignore the person that they, they don't want the opinion to be from. So they're trying to persuade you just not to listen. That's I'll, I'll, this, I'll, tell right? you an, I'll tell you an anecdote on, on this thing. Um, so week one or whatever, the convoy blows together. Um, a lot of people want to get a hold of BJ. One of them is a, a rabbi in the area who's very convoy supportive. And Orthodox Jewish rabbis, when they see other Jews, they want you to put on fill in the whole thing and do a prayer. They, like That's what they're just trying to get you to do. Um, so Jews don't try and convert other people. What religious Jews try and do is find less religious Jews and get them to pray that day. That's their yeah. like push. So uh, we were in like a hotel. Ben was so busy. I'm like, I'll jump on this grenade. I'll talk to the rabbi. I'll do this. So in like uh, a hotel where a lot of the convoy leadership is staying, I, I let the rabbi wrap the Jewish prayers thing around me. Do a in front of all, all the thing. And they were loving it. And like, you know, Bridget, who was one of like the first truckers to, to say something, she's like, oh, yay. And like, just so excited. Oh, and then talking to me and like her experience, like working with some Jews a couple, 10 years ago at some organization. And like, and it was like, yeah. So 
if this was a white supremacist organization, I was literally around like most of the road captains and leaders with a rabbi putting Jewish prayer equipment on me and doing a prayer in front of them mm -hmm. to like standing ovation. Um, it, it, like it, there was no problems, overwhelming support. Like it was not, it was not any sort of like, because, we need Jesus to save the nation and because, cleanse us of the non-believers. Because the people who were there who participated in it had a strong respect and admiration for people of faith. Didn't matter the faith. That's why we had people from the Sikh community. We had people who are Muslims who came out. And this one particular woman who came out and spoke in support of the truckers and that she came to Canada for freedom because she came from an oppressive society. So that's why. And uh, it was really disappointing to see, well, sorry, yeah. of what, how the media behaved. No, but this is expected because Sikh, the Sikh community is such an integral part of uh, the, trucking. the trucking business in Canada. Yeah. So what the hell were they thinking when they were accusing the truckers' protest of white supremacism, like those white Sikhs? They weren't thinking. It's just it's a persuasion tactic. It, it's all just propaganda tactics. That's all they were doing. And then they found some Sikhs who were against it. And they, you know, they found Sikhs who weren't part of the convoy. And they just went up and talked to them. And they said, well, this is all Sikhs. Right? Everything was deliberately mis misrepresented. And it, it was like I've never I've seen, as we'll say, misinformation and disinformation put out there on the internet about different things. But I've never seen the level of anti-truth that went on at the Freedom Convoy. Yeah. Where what I And that's why Alternative Media got so big. Because I could just throw on my phone, start live streaming, talk a bit, say, okay, I'm going up Wellington, here's this, and just for two hours until my phone would die or whatever, just walk around, document, show what's happening, whereas the media would be like, this, and create stories, like, they're stealing food from the homeless, I'd be like, no, they're not, here's food setups, here's where all the homeless are, all the homeless are now around them, they're taking care of the homeless, the homeless, like, you enter talk to homeless people in Ottawa, they've never been happier and they've never had a better time than the dead of winter, February 2022, when the country came together and fed and clothed them. And actually, like, you know, that there's like a stat, like homeless people hear their name three times a year or something crazy like that. But like actually accepted into some sort of society there, had a community for a few weeks. People would talk to them, feed them like you didn't yeah. need to buy any food at the convoy. I could have paid zero dollars in food, just gone into the streets and like gotten a free hot dog here and a. And I free this there when someone came in with pizza. But I decided to, yeah, sometimes do that when I was on the run and, and convenience. But I would spend my money at the small businesses that decided to defy the government and be open. And that's another crazy story. Hold on. And before you go into that story, just a little comment about the homeless as well. Uh, part of the reason there is so much camaraderie, despite the fake news legacy media trying to say that we're somehow antagonistic towards the homeless. Um, not only were we feeding the homeless, but there's a lot of veterans in trucking. And there's also a lot of homeless people who are veterans for a variety of different reasons, PTSD, mental illness, whatever, that sort of stuff. So you could see when you can see on the street when people were interacting with one another, they kind of understood each other. And that's why you saw a lot of truckers shoveling the snow, cleaning up the street, cleaning up the war memorial, all that sort of stuff. And every every positive uh, thing that the truckers brought to that community, the idiots on their city council, Diane Deans, that want to be communist or the veiled communist, would try to spin everything into the exact opposite of truth. It's not it's not even that they were being, you know, uncharitable 
to what we were doing. No, it was the polar opposite. And they utilized the legacy media to do it. And that's why, you know, Dano touched on this a little bit. This is another, I mean, many reasons I banned them, but one of them was, like, I know how media works. And they have the reason when you go to media scrum uh, or a celebrity, you see it all the time, celebrities and like 100 or 200 cameras taking the same picture. It's because they have to own the intellectual property that they publish. And I knew if everybody had listened to me, which some of them didn't, if we banned legacy media from all press conferences, they would lack the intellectual property that they would need, meaning their own videos and their own pictures, to run a repeat rule to real to smear us over the long term, like they did in Janu- about January sixth in the United States. That's one of the reasons I was also trying to ban them. I wanted to ban. I wanted to cut them off. So they not only would not have access to us in our press conferences, but I wanted to cut them off from their ability to run sustained smear campaigns against us. And it was very funny. I did um, I did so many podcasts and interviews during that time, but I did one with Angelo from the Post Millennial. And we were joking. We were setting up. I was joining him before during the interview. He said the legacy media, I think it was CTV and CBC, had to la- log on to the Post Millennial's feed to get information about the Freedom Convoy, which is exactly what I was trying to do. But uh, what do you make of those uh, those swastika flags? And that was uh, so, there during... Uh, I mean, I remember when, when the truckers' protest was happening, and because I did not know any of the people actually in the truckers' protest, and I was some random Indian in India, but I knew Jonathan K. Yeah. So I did invite John, and John had a very sympathetic view about uh, the truckers' protests may not be from a vaccine perspective. John was very pro-vaccine. Actually, I'm very pro-vaccine too. You talked to both of us got vaccinated. It was, it was mandates. Yeah. It was so, mandates, the right can, tracking all the laws around it and the authoritarian so taping. John didn't make a John didn't understand that swastika flag. And when I asked him, he said it was some random person who turned up. But but I, I still feel that don't you think that there is always a potential of these kinds of events being hijacked? So, I mean, that's exactly what the intent is. Again, it's all about persuasion and manipulation. They needed a swastika there and somebody with a camera. So now the individual, whether it's crazy or a setup, whatever, doesn't matter. That becomes what they apply to the entire group. This is what the the communists have always done, right? Infiltrate it. And the funniest one was the (laughs) something called two on the nose. When something is too on the nose, you know it's fake. An example of that was the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag. That was, that <laughs> was so funny. The Confederate flag comes up. Firstly, that's a foreign country. <laughs> it's not Canada. Like, there's so, anyways, firstly, it's a foreign country. But too on the nose. It wasn't just a Confederate flag. If you look at it carefully, it was a Confederate flag with a truck in the middle. <laughs> That is the type of stupidity that can only come out of an, an intel or political op. And it was very clear as soon as that tr- that flag came out, what the, the legacy entire, media... Well, the entire up, crowd. They, you have to... Uh, you'll go on. on. The, the, everybody around him just harassed him and shoot him away yeah. and told him to get out of here. And I was asked about it and I said, I don't know. They're like, who was it? Like, I don't know, the guy was wearing a black balaclava and Trudeau loves to put black on his face. Maybe it was just Trudeau 
walking around with this two on the nose Confederate flag. I don't know. If that was yeah, the Confederate flag was the most. It was just, it was ridiculous. It was, it was so, so ridiculous. ridiculous. Like everyone saw through that was so clearly a, a fake government whatever agent there to whatever. So yeah, there was one person with an Nazi flag. I'll I'll, I'll call it a Hocken Cruz to for the idiot audience uh, there. So there's one of those, you know, at the steps of the Fairmont Royal one time for one picture. Everyone in like alternative media offered up like a $30,000 reward for any information on this guy. No one could find him. Like, again, it's a guy with his face covered wearing, you know, one Nazi flag for one day, one time, and then went away. That was widely condemned by everyone in the movement. Right. And like Trudeau has signed Nazi flags before. Like, like a guy like holding up a swastika thing and Trudeau signed it at like the Calgary stampede. Like it was, so is Trudeau now a Nazi? Like it's, it's and the other thing that's so... funny, you know, we, we never, in the book we talked about uh, Rebel News, they're the ones who did the most, I guess, thorough attempts to investigate it. And that's what we put in the book to explain what their perspective was. But something else that's interesting that is missed upon people, and this is, you know, you see this happening with all the messaging around what's happening in Israel right now. They always, the opposition always tries to remove strip context from what it is. And what's interesting, if you look at the one shot of the Nazi flag that was there, it was also on a flagpole with a F Trudeau, an F Trudeau flag. So was that an endorsement of the 1930s German government? Or was that trying to equate Trudeau to being exactly like the 1930s German government? And one of the first people I saw at stage, the first day I was there, she had a, a big yellow sign with a swastika on it. So I went up to her and I said, hi, can she didn't know who I was and it was better that way. And I said, can you tell me about your flag? So your flag, your, your sign. And she said, oh, and she holds it. She said, you see the, the, um, the swastika equals the vaccine and this equals the yellow star because people like Justin Trudeau are what led to my people, I'm, I'm a religious Jew, ending up in concentration camps. So that's why I'm putting the Nazi flag, because that's how Trudeau is behaving. So context is important, but you'll notice with legacy media, the strategy is always to strip the context. They did that with Trump, right? When Trump said, oh, there's peaceful people on both sides. Well, what they did is they edited the statement prior, and they edited the statement afterwards, and that gives you the complete opposite of what he was Can trying I, I'll to I'll tell you for this, like uh, now since my recent, as we've pointed out, uh, Indian media fame, I get a lot of people warning me about Hindu far-right nationalism, and what they will try and do is, again, strip context and be like, here's Hindus with swastikas. You can't be associated with this if you're Jewish. It's like, you think I'm that stupid that I don't know like the, the, the root of where the swastika come from? Yeah, yeah, Hindus, like, if you're not Indian, like, it's a Hindu religious symbol, yeah. like the Jewish star David that was, you know, corrupted by the Nazis and used, that's why I call it the hack and crew. It's like, I know the context. Like, you can't just show me a bunch of people in India with swastikas and tell me they're anti-Semitic. I know Indian people. It's like the least anti-Semitic country you've ever been to. They don't even understand. Literally, they're in every house in India. That's right. But again, they show me, like, here's an Indian guy yelling at a rally with a swastika. And you're like, that's a Hindu. It's not a German swastika. It's a Sanskrit swastika. Like, yeah, it's like, and I could tell, but like. You know, this works on a lot of stupid, yeah. the, the same Jews who who uh, fall for the Muslim Brotherhood groups uh, calls for peace and unity will will fall for this sort of far right 
uh, Hindu nationalists. Yeah, we call them Jewish and, leaders in Canada. Yeah, yeah the, the leaders of our community are are the stupidest people you could yeah, ever imagine. They really are. They're very um, it's, it's, I mean, because you need to be educated and have some intelligence to work hard to reach that level of stupidity. <laughs> you know, like you you can't be really dumb and be as stupid as the Jewish leaders because they've studied for years. They have groups. They they meet and they congregate and they strategize on how to be the biggest idiots possible. Um, and 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 that and 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 so these people can be fooled by oh look, there's a brown person with a swastika. You're like they're called a, Hindus. A very very famous Jew, like world famous, uh, who I spoke to described it best. You'll understand this. I'll try to contextualize it. But he described organized Jewish leadership in the West, in Canada, the United States. He describes them as shmata Jews. And what's a shmata? Shmata is a, a derogatory a term for dirty rag, right? And we sometimes use that. If it's not a derogatory. It's a term for dirty rag. Just like, let me finish. Right. Let me finish. Let me finish. Okay. Um, it's He described it as shmata Jews. And it's derogatory in the sense that uh, it's used for people who are in like the apparel industry or big business or whatever at the turn of the century. And the idea is these are people who uh, got into a business making shmatas. They made a gazillion dollars and now they think they're brilliant, but they have no concept of philosophy. They have no concept of cultures other than they can run a business, but they don't know anything else. So, and that has what's become uh organized leadership within canada and the united states for the most part now there are some people who get it who really understand some of the problems and there's a little bit of push and pull amongst those jewish leadership and there are people who are trying to wake up others but you know the people who are the shmata jews they're just very very aggressive in imposing their worldview on everybody so, else and it's all moral equivalency so this this should be pointed out like the the birth of Israel the Zionist movement um you know there's a lot of disinformation around it but on this particular topic the like the Herzl and 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 the core like the first thing they did is they're like okay you know too much anti-semitism here you know we're going to go join with the other Jews in Israel and like we'll we'll, we'll you know whatever they tried the Zionist project from you know Europe in the late 1880s they took it, they thought, to the rabbis um, and the political uh, the political class. And they said no, because the rabbis were comfortable. They had jobs. They didn't want to rock the boat. They didn't want to upset the political balance. They they were set. So they took it to the leaders of the Jewish community, the the, the rich, the whatever, like the evil Rothschilds that, that, that we all uh, go. And they said no, because they're like, hey, like they were comfortable. They were rich. They didn't need the state of Israel. They could, uh, if they need to move and get away and go to America or somewhere, they, they could do it. So whatever it the zionist movement didn't take off until it was ad uh, adopted by the majority of the jewish population where rabbis would say if they didn't support it i'll have no credibility in my community and the elitist jews if they didn't come in support then they wouldn't look like community leaders because they wouldn't be in line with the community so this is where a lot of people i think don't understand where social pressure is and how culture flows i think a lot of people think it's top down I think what the Freedom Convoy proved, and I think the story of the state of Israel in this context also proves it. Actually, no, it's bottom up. It's there has to be societal changes. It has to be at like this level, the level of people talking in communities, and then the leaders, when they see it, will come in and take the credit. But our our leaders in, and I, I would caution every other community, Christian leaders, Hindu leaders, atheists, like all of them. Are comfortable in the current scenario. They might know something's wrong, but if they, a lot of people in positions of comfort, 
aren't going to do something until there's social pressure to make them do it. So don't feel like you always need to be like, why isn't this MP or why isn't this really rich Indian businessman saying the things I want to say? It's like, they'll come around if you can convince your community and work with them to, to change your attitudes, then to be leaders of the community, they will shift their attitudes. And let me just give one last example on this so we can get beyond yeah. this topic. So I don't want it to be the two Jews in the Indian podcast, but you know, in the, um, in the 1930s, the New York times ran a series of articles over several years, uh, defending Hitler and explaining that Hitler is really not that bad. He's just trying to appease the right wing of his party. Edensburg shows that in his book. Yeah. That's right. And those articles were written by Jews. So the reason I bring that up is people are very quick to look at Jews and just as one group that they all think the same way. That's postmodern cultural Marxism framing that you are defined by your group. Do all Hindus think the same way? Obviously not. Well, all Jews don't there's, think the uh, same there's way. There's 15 million Jews in the world. So by my calculation, that's about 25 million different groups of Jews yes, that we have um, in terms of uh, philosophy there. So, so I would never blanket statement all Hindus, just like I wouldn't blanket statement all Jews or all Muslims or all Christians. I don't like the group thing. For me, it's important to address individuals. Now, I want to touch upon a very specific topic, chapter 22. Nonviolence gives us the upper hand. Obviously, the Indian in me kind of got interested in this. Now, why did you guys choose this path? A couple of reasons. So, you know, we all learn about Gandhi in school. Uh, at least I did when we had a school curriculum. And the power of peaceful protests. And that was always kind of in the back of my head. The framing, which I've explained many times in terms of messaging, I hearken back to being a teenager, going to a Grateful Dead concert or an Allman Brothers, like a music festival where you have all different types of people who disagree about everything, but we all find each other and come together around peace, love, unity, and freedom, which became the four pillars of the convoy from my perspective. But I think India, in terms of a Canadian who learns about world history, serves as a very powerful example for that, which was, again, in the back of our heads, that if you want to take on the government, you don't have an army, you don't have weapons. Uh, in our case, what we did has the very big imposing trucks. That's why trucks were such a good vehicle to show our footprint. If Gandhi had trucks, can you imagine? If he had semis, what he could have done? Uh, yes, for the record, Gandhi was very anti-technology. He would not yeah, like no, it. Yeah. I get that. I yeah. get it. But if he could get over it. But so my point is, that's why. And I think. Oh, I'm sorry to butt in. Gandhi was also anti-vaxxer. Perfect. <laughs> no, he was. Uh, he would have been there for that reason. He just wouldn't have been driving his own truck. Yeah, it's. it's, it's well, I mean, you bring up good point. Like, Gandhi you know what? Somebody has to do a meme uh, of on, uh, on mid journey of Gandhi with a truck. Please, if you do that, send it to me. I will post it all over the net. But I'll tell you why this stood out to me was because whatever I heard was the complete opposite, that it was a bunch of white nationalists uh, going around uh, hating brown people, black people, Muslim people. And, and like I said, I would never figure it out that I was like, there are so many Sardars who are truck drivers. How are they going to manage this shit is something <laughs> exactly. beyond me. But 
I did touch upon this aspect that you cover in the book from a very different perspective when I had Karima on the podcast too. Uh, Karima discussed the uh, the Emergencies Act, which was invoked, especially uh, thanks to you guys. Uh, and for everybody who, who doesn't know what that is, that is Canada's equivalent of martial law. It was emergency. Um, I, I will I will say at the time when the Emergency Act was instituted, I think that was the seventh emergency that was put under during the convoy. Uh, yeah. We had a, a, a municipal emergency for COVID, a provincial emergency for COVID, a federal emergency generally for COVID. Uh, and then we had a municipal emergency because of the honking. And then we had a provincial emergency declared because of the honking. And then there was the uh, Federal Emergencies Act being clevered, but the other one, we're also under an official climate emergency. So there's your seven emergencies at, simultaneously at one time. So there were seven official emergencies declared by the by the Canadian government at one time. <laughs> when they, like, this is so nuts. Like, But again, this is why we were pushing back so hard, because if you can just say emergency and do whatever you want and then declare climate change as an emergency, right, which we've declared, then what can they do right when some absolute lunatic gets power like and listen i'm not saying right now climate lockdowns are coming and they can do it that but what i am saying is the groundwork for if they ever want to do anything like that has been laid and something very important related to that that you yeah. touched on is two days before justin trudeau invoked the emergency act aka martial law in canada doug ford the conservative did that on the provincial level in in Ontario. So this is why I call it the uniparty. It's not about left left versus right or blue versus red. It's about all of us individuals versus a very small political class that believes we work for them, not they work for us, which is the actual structure of our And I think can I ask a question here? Do have you guys ever considered this angle? Just consider this a naive question from an Indian who observes Canada from yeah. outside. Then maybe the Canadians are not used to such organized behavior and the Canadian political class got rattled when so many trekkers came around and they overreacted. Well, yes. And there's more to that. It's similar to when, you know, I used to live in South America, in Colombia, when Hugo Chavez was in power. And you see a lot of the same similarities of what's going on politically in Canada and the United Kingdom, where I just came back from, is very similar to what we witnessed, what was going on in Venezuela right on the border when I was down there. And um, the political class itself, they're, they've fallen into this sort of, um, I don't want to say an echo chamber sort of thing, but you know we discussed that a little bit early on. But I think all of them, are losing sight of where things are going politically in the country. And that's what's eroding away at uh, their credibility. Again, it all comes down to this that's small the peace, love, of and people. Can I, can I Daniel this one up a bit? Sure. Politicians are stupid and lazy. They are. And they love being stupid. Well, they love being lazy. They love doing nothing. So one of the best positions in Canadian politics is being an MP for the opposition party. A lot of they all want if that. you all, all dose them that. with truth serum in the neck and say, would you rather be in power or not in power? Most of them would rather not be in power because then they don't have to do anything. They don't have to legislate. They just have to get up, complain a bit, clip it out, send it out for fundraising. Easy, right? And a lot of the people in the ruling party, you don't really need to do things. You fall in line. You get your vote whipped. You, you go meet some communities. You pr mm -hmm. present a petition. You do a thing here and there. 
It's all standard. You have your weak set, you have your handlers, easy. Maybe some really determined ones are actually in there writing a bill they care about and, and trying to legislate, but that's not the majority of them. The majority of them want to be members, uh, high-ranking members of the opposition, best, you know, the most attention, least amount of work. So when the convoy came and shook up the, the, the political establishment, all of a sudden they had to do things, they had to work that week, they had to learn something new, they had to take briefings, they had to take a position on something where the polling companies hadn't done the data yet, hadn't hadn't told them what to think yet. So it was it was stressful and it was scary. And the- can you imagine having to do a job? that you're being paid for and elected to do. I couldn't imagine doing that. And the thing that really scared them, and again, this is what I'm getting to with Hugo Chavez, is that was one of the most, one of the first massive protests across the country in the Western Hemisphere that was the middle class and the working class coming out. The middle and working class are not protesters. You know why? We're too busy working. We don't have time for this. So this was the first time at least in modern Canadian history, where your small business owners, that the the politicians are always you know hiding behind. We need to build the, help the small business owners and the working class and the business class. They all came out and protested for the first time. That's what scared them. And you know, in the many conversations I had, uh, you know, for example, the weekend that it was it was uh, it was brought down that the police came in and mass arrested everybody. I was working with uh, one particular NHL player. We were trying to get 60 NHL players to fly in on their private jets uh, to meet with and talk with truckers on stage in front of parliament. And I said to them, cool, just make sure everybody brings their jersey sort of thing. I was talking to... By the way, uh, I had to help him with the sports, but he doesn't know any sports. I don't know any so sports. So I was his sports consultant. <laughs> I'd be like, no, that he's a real person. Talk to him, talk to him, talk to him. Um, a, I was dealing with uh, former NDP um, school trustees. I was talking through a conduit to uh, many people in the Liberal Party, and I'll get back to that in a second. I was talking to the wealthiest hedge fund managers in North America who were also supporting us. We had everybody. I had all demographics of people supporting us. All socioeconomic uh, demographics were supporting us during during this protest. And I I think that's what really scared them. Now, the other thing that, you know, they tried to wash over this and hide this in the POEC, and it was really structured, it was very rigid. I was denied standing which would have given me the right to cross-examine everybody in that room who was lying, which a lot of them were. Um, Why do you think the EMA was called? I can tell you exactly why it was called. Because leading up to the Emergency Measures Act, I was talking through a conduit, a contact in their party, with 30 plus, I think it was 33 or 35, I don't remember exactly how much, liberal members of parliament that were forming a coalition in their party for a confidence vote to get rid of Justin Trudeau. That's why he called the Emergency Measures Act. And they know I know that. And that's why they wouldn't allow me to cross-examine during the POEC. So to save his ass politically, Trudeau invoked martial law for trucks that were in violation of parking bylaws. That's the clown world our country has become. And it cannot be tolerated. Trudeau reminds me of Indira Gandhi because Indira Gandhi was the Indian prime minister that invoked the emergency under Article 352 and 
356 of the Indian Constitution. Uh, it's it's a very interesting thing. She lost the election. She went to the court challenging the election. The court said it's fair. She invoked emergency. It's all very weird. But the most scary thing is the the GoFundMe. Can you tell what happened over there? And then the bank accounts being frozen. That That's very scary. Yeah, there's a couple of things. So with the GoFundMe, uh, there's like all of those things in that happened there. And I'm, I'm telling more of these stories over time because people are willing to listen to them finally on my Substack, on my streams and all that sort of stuff. By the way, bjdictor.substack.com. Um, the GoFundMe, you know, I was dealing with Tamara, talking to her regularly. I had to step away for a day and a half and come back and all that. That's when I had the car accident and all sorts of stuff. The GoFundMe, as we were told, was, or at least publicly, was, oh, GoFundMe just ended, uh, just terminated it. But according to the treasurer, uh, Chad Eros, he, sa he said to me privately, but six months ago, seven months ago, he said, hey, man, I was in the conversation when GoFundMe finally pulled the plug. They transferred $1.4 million to Tamara Leach's account to her personal account. So two things happened. First, the the lawyers who were political ties that were really, they're, they're trying to tar tear it apart from the inside. Uh, the lawyers who were negotiating with GoFundMe were hostile towards GoFundMe, according to Chad. He said they were hostile and aggressive. And, you know, Chad, this, he's kind of new to this, the political stuff. And he, was, he didn't want to, you know, cause friction. So while the treasurer was trying to be to work with GoFundMe and say we'll get things and we'll get things in order and whatever the the lawyers our lawyers were threatening GoFundMe and GoFundMe said you know what we're just going to cancel this now that's apparently according to the treasurer that's what his um, his experience was but the other thing that was very interesting I still don't have an answer for this. Uh, DivergeMedia.com has been investigating all this stuff, everything around the POEC, evidence-based, and writing articles. And he's got a series of podcasts coming out where he's going to lay all this out. When the $1.4 million was transferred to Tamara's personal account, which you can't do, right? You put it on, on GoFundMe, like both and I were, her and I were on the GoFundMe. I said, you deal with the money. I'm going to deal with the messaging, whatever. Um, the bank called her and said to her, Tamara, you can't put this $1.4 million for a nonprofit into your personal account. It needs to be in a proper business account for a nonprofit. Please call us and we'll help you or whoever's on your team do the paperwork to set up a new account. They called her, not for one day, or two days, or six days, and she never returned their phone call. So she's running around with me and everybody else saying, we don't have any money, we don't have any money, the, the bank has blocked my money in the account. Well, if I would have known it's in your personal account, set up the proper account, call them back. She never returned their phone call. It makes no sense, right? But it does make sense. And Diverge Media will explain that. Now this is this is scary because when you shut people's bank accounts, like in this part of the world, 
it, it like so well, I, I have I have one of our friends covering it there. That's that's, that's a separate issue. It, like so that was this is that was in the very beginning of the protest that GoFundMe um, transferred the money and Tamara didn't do the proper paperwork to set up a proper account. But that was the very early part of the protest. Later on, we had our personal accounts frozen the after the Go. Emergency Measures Act, and between there was Give Send Go, where Doug Ford, the conservatives sought an injunction injunction to block give send go money to come into canada so both trudeau and doug ford were doing this together to ensure that no money came to any of the truckers and Except then the, the bitcoin well they couldn't they tried to but they, they tried couldn't. to i said no money could get there and only the bitcoin got to the truckers. yeah, yeah we'll get to the why are they so scared of you guys like you guys so, are not so, scary so, people so, I'll, I'll, I'll explain that in a second i could explain I'll, like there's not enough. I, I get this being in conservative online media here in Canada. There's a perception among the conservative ruling party that there's this isn't America. They don't. There's not enough money in their perception to go around. So it all has to be under sort of the umbrella in some way of the conservative party. You all need to sort of be linked to the conservative party. And here you had this movement that was heterodox, had got. 50 a half a million facebook followers immediately and could raise 20 million dollars in two weeks had their own email list and social media that's not that's not good in the canadian establishment you can't have the people with that much power right you created a network that was more powerful than than a mainstream media network a a social media following that was bigger than anything the conservatives had and a fundraising mechanism that out raised all the so you exposed them so we, it's not even expose them. It's we just this this natural. It created a potential political player that was off the field, and I think it destroyed a lot of their own narrative. So they lashed out and needed to take this thing down and then bring it under the the Look purview of the way. parties. Look at it this way: we um, for Justin Trudeau to get elected, Jerry Butts had to raise forty million dollars over four years to get Trudeau elected. We raised twenty three million dollars in three weeks. We were the opposition because there is no opposition. We were, we became the official opposition. So the entire uniparty and political class worked together to subvert, take over, and end the trucker convoy as quickly as possible, and then try to lay blame on the people who were organizing it and putting it together, myself and others, right? That's why they co-opted it, because they could see the foundation of an actual political movement that would be in opposition, but aligned with what the values of a conservative party should be, but were actually conservative, that would build it build itself out and take over. And that's exactly what happened um, to the Dutch farmers, because they were watching us. Jordan Peterson explained this to me. They were watching us the entire time. They saw some of the weak, no, the weaknesses, but how the government exploited us and how we were terrible. They had people on the inside, clearly that were trying to tear it down. So they adjusted their protest movement in accordance to what happened to us. You know, they randomized it. They didn't stay in one spot. You know, they came back. They would go, but, you know, that sort of stuff. And what happened? They built their own political party, the BBB, I think is what yeah. it's called. That's the acronym. And they managed to gain 20% in the vote of the vote in the next election. And now they just veto any of this WF nonsense that comes into the parliament, and that's it. And that's what the political class was trying to do. And we see in their own testimony at the POEC, Diverge Media did a video on this where he shows the emails 
between Justin Trudeau and Candace Bergen agreeing that the protest needs to come to an end and they need to work together to end the protest. And then that evidence was redacted thereon in, in the POEC testimony. And I remember specifically on February 4th, I'm in Tamara's hotel room. There's Tamara, myself, our husband, a bunch of people. And uh, one of the lawyers was at the door or whatever. And he comes in and he says, uh, yeah, I got good news. Uh, Candace Bergen, who became the new leader when uh, Aaron O'Foole uh, resigned, she wanted to do a meeting with us. And everybody's like, oh, that's great. That's great. And I'm like, wait, wait. I know how that party works. I know their strategy. I know, where does she want to meet? And Tamara turned around and said, yeah, where does she want to meet? And they said, at the A&W. And I turned to Tamara and said, no, no, not happening. We're not meeting with her. Uh, if she wants to meet with us, Candace wants to meet with us, she can come in the back door of the hotel into this room and tell us how she can end mandates and what strategy they have to end the Arrive Canada. Because if not, we're going to go to the A&W. We're going to stand behind her like a bunch of fools. And she's going to say, you know, the Conservative Party is for for working class people. We hear you, but it's time to go home. So I said, no, we're not. I was very, very firm on this. Where it's, nobody is going there. And they said, go call Candace and tell her she can come and meet with us privately. Needless to say, Candace didn't follow up. But that night, she came out of a late session of Parliament. There was a media scrum. And at the media scrum, what did she say? She said... The Conservative Party is here for working people. We love you all, but the truckers need to go home. And I had some people in my room with me at that time. I said, ha, you see, she did exactly what I told you she would do. Do not trust them. They will sell us out like anybody, anybody else in the political it, it, class. And I was right. It was good to be there to see Ben uh, heading the media strategy. Because I remember when he, when like the rumors of this, like I came in after a, a filming live stream day and like at the end, it's like, oh, there wants to be a Candace Bergen meeting. And I'm like, oh, please don't tell me you guys are dumb enough to fall for that. And mm. it was already like, oh, Ben told us this one. I'm like, oh, thank God someone who didn't have to be me, like, you know, shake them because yeah, we, we know how this thing works. Like that was the narrative you saw. All the like all the right wing, let's say, political actor in the media, they all push the same narrative is great for the convoy. We support you, but be here for just the weekend. Time to go home. Y you made your point. You've been heard. Time to go home. And like to show how much um, sabotage that was going on this morning in the throw rebel news under the bus uh, on on January 30th, when we did our first press conference, the one I told you about at the beginning of this interview. After that interview, Rebel News didn't show up. Remember, Rebel yeah. wasn't there. I got a message almost immediately after we stopped the interview. And I spoke to some of the journalists and everybody was starting to move out. Uh, and it was just me and Tamara and a bunch of them in the room just finishing up. I got a text message from Alexa from Rebel News. And she said, we had a miscommunication. We missed the interview. Can we come do a one-on-one -on -one with you? And I thought immediately, perfect. You know what? I'll be able to front run legacy media with the exclusive interview with Rebel. I'm sure it'll be, you know, maybe we'll do a half hour or something and I'll be able to get our entire case and uh, ahead of the legacy media, you know, uh, anti-mandate, peace, love, union, freedom, anti-arrive can, whatever. So about 10 minutes later, Mocha, Lincoln and Alexa come in and they set up their cameras and it was myself and Tamara. And we did 51 minutes, if I remember correctly, of 
our entire everything of why the convoy's here, what we're doing, all that sort of positive messaging, whatever. And Alexa said, okay, I'm going to go translate it into French, start working on it. I want to get it out to Quebec and everybody else. I'm like, great. And I guess she saw it as a big opportunity for her too, which it was. She, I, I messaged her late last night, that night, and I said, are you going to, um, when are you going to have it up? She said, I'm working on it now through the night and as soon as possible. The next morning I follow up, I go on the Rebel News, it's still not up. I message her, I'm like, what's happened? And she's oh, I'm not, I'm just waiting for, you know, approval, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, well, let's not sit on this too long. I was busy. He saw what chaos it was. So the whole day flies by like that. Yeah. And the end of the night, I send her another message. I'm like, what happened to it? She says, I don't know. I don't know if it's approved or something. What I'm like, when are you approved? It's the biggest news story on the planet. I'm getting 10,000 messages an hour amongst all my feeds. Every news conglomerate around the world, IDW, uh, BBC, ABC, everybody is trying to get an interview with us. I gave you the exclusive interview to the biggest news story on the planet. I mean, he I didn't say it. this, but I was thinking about it. And what did Ezra Levant do? Spiked it. He spiked it. He didn't upload it. How are you a news agency? And you have the exclusive interview for the biggest news story on the planet for the biggest protest in Canadian history, and you don't upload it? No, I mean, this is this is where we're talking about. So this is where Canadians... Diverge this, media. Diverge and this is where we get in and I get into trouble here, too, is, listen, there's people that you think are anti-establishment in Canada that are alternative. Um, but there is a difference between independent media and, let's say, political media, of official alternative media, as I yeah, like to call exactly. it. Right. So Rebel's part of the official alternative media. And those people, again, the conservative party knows they can dangle a few tricks here and there. And again, Rebel News, which is like the alt-right boogeyman of Canada, right? The anti-hate network, all the leftist organizations, Rebel If you go on Rebel News, you are a literal alt-right theocratic, blah, 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 blah. These people spike the convoy story. So, like, it's just the level of, you know, and, and a part of it is, is people in, in Canadian media are fighting over scraps. It's getting worse. So, you know, got to make a living and make bargains here but and there. It, but, but at the end of the day, the official op, uh, the official alternative media in Canada are stakeholders in the political structure. Yeah. And you see that and explain that. Okay. So again, it's what, it's what I said. So there's a, there's a certain, like, let's say donor class, which gives to the, the politicians, or whatever. And you're very limited in how much money you can give to the political parties. It's like a $1,600 maximum donation to a political campaign. So how you're not going to stop ever. You never stop money from running into politics, whatever. You just change the flow. There's still tons of dark money. We, I mean, I've made talk Indians might be famous how I explain how the Calistanis have gotten in, but think of if you want to fund um, the parties, you can send money to the party, but that's limited. You can send the money you want to a media outlet that does the campaigning for the party. So you're essentially doing that. So if you look at, you know, maybe some of the funders, major funders, of these places, they fund both the conservative party and this media outlet. So the media outlet's not going to risk their relationship with the party because it's, it's the same thing, right? So the party's going to do what the major donors want. And if the major don't, and so, so are the media outlets connected to those major donors. So you have this, this thing where they have vested interests 
in, you know, the blue team or the red team or the orange team or whatever it is. And there's so very few truly independent people and that's being exposed and you have a lot of, you know, and then you have like, you have, you have these, you know, the official alternative media, you have real independent media. And then you have like absolute lunatics running around online saying crazy shit and inventing conspiracy theories. Let me, let me explain it in a different way, but uh, a stakeholder is the person or group who uh, is the lead of a voting block is what it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, leading up to the POEC, the political class, the con Inc uniparty, whatever you want to call it was getting very, very nervous that I was not on board with their fake lie about the narrative about the convoy and the fact that we were sabotaged by both parties, you know, again, Candace Bergen and Justin Trudeau speaking together. So what they did is they reached out to as many YouTubers as possible that were pro convoy in Canada. And they presented a document that I have that I can share with you. It's a PDF. People in India will love it. And it's, I don't remember how many pages, 70 pages, if I, if it, I can't remember. It's, it's the one it, you said. Yeah, I've, I've It identifies all the YouTube influencers and stakeholders that they're getting on board to promulgate this fake narrative around the Freedom Convoy, which is what we've been seeing in the news. And it's fascinating to see all of these people who uh, have completely ignored that book won't talk to me because I'm not going to do conservatives bad, conservatives good, uh, liberals bad. And what they did is they tried to capture as many of them as possible into this group leading into the POEC to do their best to defame either myself or Bridget or anybody else who wouldn't rank. go along with the big lie for the benefit of a political. I don't care about political parties. I hate political parties, right? I'm not going to help them. I'm, I'm here for the truth. I'm not going to lie to people. I didn't lie during the convoy. I'm not going to lie here. And the reason they needed to capture as many YouTube influencers as possible who have been lying to their audience this entire time is because going into that uh, structured theater of a, of a commission, there were two narratives going into it. One was the liberal narrative that it was Mad Max, pandemonium, bodies on the street, you know, the, the world is ending chaos. But then there was the conservative narrative that it was peaceful in the beginning, but it got out of hand. Both are complete and utter bullshit, and they know it. And I went in to tell the truth, to explain that a bunch of truckers started this convoy. They got co-opted and subverted by people in the political class who have political loyalties. They then fundraised around it, raised $5 million, kept it for themselves, and then abandon the rest of us truckers who don't have any donations or legal representation or whatever. So while everybody else has been playing celebrity for the past year, I've been doing my best to connect with as many of those truckers as possible to try to get them funding and legal counsel and to help them. Why? Because I'm not, I'm not doing political party team play. I don't care about the parties. I think they all suck. But I do believe in the truth. And I believe in what we did in Ottawa, and it was important, and it had a ripple effect around the world. So before we end it, we didn't talk about the yeah, yeah. That that's why I wanted to ask you about that. So, how much of an impact does that have? Like, how can they just freeze bank accounts? Uh, it was, you know, it. I've said I, I do a lot of uh, Bitcoin Twitter spaces. So if you're on Twitter or X, 
and you join any of the Bitcoin spaces, you'll often see me there talking about it. I've been a Bitcoiner for many, many years, but this scenario with uh, um, with the Freedom Convoy really made it uh, hit its use case, proved its use case. And I'll explain that in a second. But it wasn't just my bank accounts that was frozen. It was me and two or 300 other people. It was my, it was my bank account. It was all my credit cards, my lines of credit, my corporate account, everything. And I, I told this story in the book. You've read it, I'm sure. But I logged on to my, uh, one of my bank accounts. And where my transaction history was, was scrubbed. And there was a message that said, when you begin to use this account, your transaction history will appear here. And the other bank uh, just deleted me as a user. That was Scotiabank and Zero Hedge wrote the story about me. And, and you know, I threw, uh, what's her name? Christopher Friedland under the bus. But the one thing, I was the only Bitcoiner there. So because of that, I understand the Bitcoin protocol uh, you know, maybe I was a little more more comfortable. I also don't get rattled too much. You know, the entire time I spent, you know, trying to calm Tamara down, calm everybody. I'm like, the world's not, everything's going to work out. It's going to be fine. Just be positive, right? We just got to be patient. But Bitcoin itself, of all the $23 million that was raised, $6 million of it managed to get through and was locked in escrow because of this class action lawsuit that's been levied against us. The remainder was returned by the platforms that were sitting on money. They didn't want to sit on it for too long. They didn't want exposure to the legal stuff, which didn't help them because they ended up getting exposure. But the $1.2 million in Bitcoin, government couldn't stop. So everything, all those hyperbolic examples of Bitcoin and that Bitcoin will be your money, will be your hedge against an authoritarian government. As a Canadian, we always think, well, that's going to happen somewhere else. That's not going to happen here in Canada until it did. And of the $1.2 million that uh, we had collected in donations, and by the way, I've said this many times, we're getting donations for human rights through Bitcoin from Nigeria to Canada. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Nigerians were sending Canadians donations to fight for human rights. That's the clown world we live in right now, right? But of the $1.2 million, we managed, and thank God bless Caribou, nobody Caribou on Twitter. Please follow him. Uh, BTC Sessions and a bunch of these Bitcoiners that you know were up day and night trying to figure out how to get money and distribute JW as well, how to get money to these truckers. They eventually did. And they managed to distribute, uh, I think it was about $850,000 in Bitcoin directly to the truckers. And there's a very famous video online that I've posted many times of Caribou going up to a guy who happened to be live streaming. Mm -hmm. And he said, here, here you go, brother. Here's an envelope. Remember I told you about Bitcoin before I showed you a wallet? Well, in that envelope is $8,000 in Bitcoin. And the guy's like, well, that's crazy. And Caribou's like, no, you sitting here for three weeks trying to protect all of us and fight for freedoms. That's what's crazy. So thanks, brother. We appreciate it. So the remaining, I think it was approximately five Bitcoin, if I'm mistaken, that he, he hadn't distributed yet, he was getting to. Finally, the government got a hold of it. You know how they got a hold of it? They sent 15 officers from the RCMP and the OPP with a warrant from a judge who is known, at rub known as rubber stamping anything uh, to seize his computers, all his phones, uh, his podcasting mic, uh, some of his personal stuff. That's how they stopped the rest of the Bitcoin for being distributed. It was only by force. But in terms of the protocol itself, they couldn't stop it. And if 
Caribou had, I mean, it was a multi-sig wallet, which we're getting, that's complicated Bitcoin stuff, not important right now. But if he had memorized the seed phrase in his head for the wallet, if it was a single wallet and it was memorized in his head, nobody would be able to get it. Unless uh, maybe if they tortured you, uh, maybe that's that's the next thing. Prime Minister Blackface is going to introduce torturing progressive people. torture. Yeah, progressive, progressive torture. torture for human rights. That that's is right. a, that's the next phase of Canadian uh, politics. Uh, so, but the important lesson in all of this is, and I tell talk about this in the Bitcoin spaces and people who are new to Bitcoin. When your money is in the bank, it's what we call a multi-sig wallet, meaning multi-signatories need to approve your transactions. Your money is in the bank. And Indians know that. This is why you guys understand gold. When your money is in the bank, three parties need to agree that it's your money. Yourself, the government, and the bank. With Bitcoin, that's not the case. It's peer-to-peer. It's just your authorization. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's actually very scary. The, the, the authoritarian impulse. And as an Indian, I mean, I don't know why I'm saying this. I'm kind of used to it. And I was the only crazy guy opposing lockdowns in India. And I was called all sorts of names. And I was like, you're going to lock down people in Mumbai where you do this and you punch four people. Yeah. What's the point of the lockdown? Everybody's going to get it. I am super pro vaccines, like for the record, very pro. I even got boosted once. So I am super pro vaccines. I was like, yes, but if somebody doesn't want to take it, I don't care. That's right. Yeah. I don't care. You don't take it. I'll was, hang out with you too. If that was the mentality, all of this would have been avoided. Like most, over eighty-five percent of Canadians would have got it. There and and there would be less social distress. Less people would be screaming about genocide and and all this because a lot of them were coerced into getting it, threatened with losing their jobs, and then if they didn't, like having their lives destroyed and 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 being made targets. And it was like it was really horrible for people to be legitimately persecuted for their you know medical choices. And that's what the Freedom Convoy is about. And like, I would get up there and sometimes I'd make speeches in front of the stage if they let me. And I'd say, listen, I, I got vaccinated, but I'd make the case for freedom and, and this. And people come up and be like, thank you so much for saying you're vaccinated because it's, this isn't about the vaccine. This is about mandates and like, and all that. So you, you would get a lot of, I mean, it was the most misunderstood, deliberately and willfully misunderstood movement I've ever seen, but also successful. So like, well, there is a lot of like, doom and gloom and stay around this and, and there's a whole rabbit hole that, you know, you can go down on this. It's important to know that it was successful. It changed the narrative and the science and it opened up the country. It put a significant bulwark in uh, in front of the government's attempt to become more authoritarian, make these powers permanent and all that. And, and I, I think that's, that's, it's important to understand where your victories came from, even if they came at a cost. And, you know, uh, for this podcast, there's a lot of people who hate all the political parties in Canada. It's easy to hate them all, but it's a lot harder to be hated by every single political party in Canada. <laughs> and you're talking to two of the two Canadians who've managed to be on the list of uh, a wanted sign inside parliament. Do not talk to these two Jews. Oh, they're so afraid of us. They're so afraid of us. It's, just, it's hysterical. But, you know, on that point, during the convoy, I could see, like when you understand political messaging and how Digicom operates and stuff, I could see when we were going to win was when the premiers across the country, led by, I think Doug Ford was the first, Kenny or Doug Ford, one of the two of them, started message testing about removing restrictions. And you'll see this often when a politician will say one thing one day, 
the opposite the next day and then go back to the first thing. They're just testing messages and they're trying to see what's resonating with their voter base. And as soon as I saw that happening on the provincial level, I knew we won. We just got to be patient and not bring in some subverters who are going to try to tear it apart from the inside, which is what we did. And they were ironically linked to Doug Ford and the conservatives. That's another issue. But as soon as we saw that messaging happening, I knew we were going to win. And what happened? It followed up with all the provinces removing all mask requirements and mandates and restrictions. All of a sudden, as Daniel said, we had new science, right? It was amazing. Literally. But uh, they didn't do it immediately. Oh, we're going to do it in a week. We'll do it in two weeks. And uh, the case of uh, BC, the most left-wing government, they did it, I think, in the beginning of April. So it's two months after. And, you know, I would troll them online, hashtag nothing to do with truckers, right? Because it all had everything to do with truckers. And even the federal government had to do that after I don't know, six or eight months. Yeah. But what it did is it showed the political class, the uniparty, there is a line in the sand and you will never, ever cross it again. Because this time we were peaceful and we got everybody on board and we had goodwill from millions of people, tens of millions of people around the world. And we still have that. And when I was in England, uh, as well as when I was in the United States, I just gave a speech in, uh, in Miami last week. Every place I go, everyone tells me, we're free because of what you guys did in Canada. Because that became a message to all our politicians There were people here. in Texas waving Canadian flag <laughs> as a symbol of freedom. Not even that. Wait, wait, wait. I remember, you remember this? It was the first week or so. Uh, you have to understand, understand trucking culture a little bit. But I saw this this video, this line. I think it's on Newsmax, if I if I remember correctly, of Kenworth W nine hundreds, which are like that's like the quintessential truckers truck, you know, like Optimus Prime type thing. There was a lineup of them at the North Dakota border, if I'm not mistaken. Like as far as the eye can see, American truckers from the Midwest with Canadian flags draped over their hoods, like to understand people from texas and the midwest putting on a flag that is not an american flag that almost brought me brought tears to my eyes because that is the type of unity that no politician has ever been able to achieve and then one more thing on that topic of unity the first day that i was there i remember uh, i was walking up and down parliament trying to get a read of everything and i walked by the chateau laurier and i looked to my right and what did i see a line of people coming, walking into Ontario from Quebec with the fleur-de-lis, the Quebec flag, and the Canadian flag. And which is, remember, we're, we're supposed to be at odds with one another. And those people would walk up to Parliament Hill. They'd find some Western truckers from Alberta, Saskatchewan, BC, whatever. Alberta and versus Quebec is like, the the left versus Kashmir versus yeah it's not quite so bad but yeah it's the Canadian rivalry of like it's France those... versus England is a good way to describe it okay yeah and they came together they hugged each other they formed friendships it was wonderful and that afternoon I did this was after Gadsad yeah no this is a couple of days after I did an interview with um, a journalist from Quebec working for a French publication. She reached out to me, whatever. So we did an hour-long interview, and it was a print uh, article she's working on. And at the end of the interview, I always ask people who are interviewing me, how do you think that went? What are your thoughts? What do you think about what's going on? I, I want to gauge where their opinion is, whether they agree or disagree. I'm just curious. And you know what she said to me? 
she said, you know, my entire life, I've been a separatist until I saw those trucks coming across the country and I realized I'm not alone. And for the first time, I felt like a Canadian. And she said, I went and I bought my first ever Canadian flag. You have to know that the, it wasn't one convoy. It wasn't like one convoy started in BC and came to Ottawa. There were dozens of once one spread up. It was sort of like people individually were like, oh, this is the called march. You had convoys coming from Quebec, convoys coming from out east. You had convoys coming from different parts of the west, all converging in there independently. So it mm. wasn't like this one centralized thing. It was like, no, this is enough. We're fed up. And the wait, reason wait. is because what you pointed out before, we're going to win if we're peaceful. And when you communicate, the, the thing that I learned in all of this, like I've done a lot of marketing communications for different stuff, different companies I worked for, my own business and whatever. But what I learned from the Freedom Convoy is the power and the amount of persuasion and unity you can create by focusing on a positive message and inspiring people to a positive future, that things will get better. And I got to tell you, with everything that's going on in the world right now, the Kalistani shit rats, all the terrorists, whatever, it's gonna, there's going to be bumps in the road for a generation. But I see a lot of positivity in the future. I see so many more of us starting to communicate with each other while we've been bifurcated in silos for a generation. It took us a while to get to clown world. I think we've hit peak stupidity, and I think the future is, is very bright and very positive, and we're going to enter into what Stephen Hicks and I call the Enlightenment 2.0, an era where we're going to see the most positive change and unity that's ever occurred in human history. But there's going to be a lot of bumps in the road before we get there, and that's what we're in right now. You know, I agree. One last question before we wrap up. Any regrets? You know, I'm working on a list, actually, because initially I'm like, no, no, but um, I would say slipping and falling definitely hurt you there. Breaking your leg, breaking you, my ankle sucked. If you could avoid that, uh, that oh, I, I would offer up driving my car into a tree the night before in a snowstorm that I was trying to get to Ottawa to go on Stephen Crowder because we had a thing set up. There was a logging truck right in front of Trudeau's office. It would have been hysterical. And I ended up in a tree and uh, ended up having to do it from a Tim Hortons quintessentially Canadian. Uh, any regrets? I regret that I wasn't a lot more forceful with the people who I could tell they were being subversive in some way, shape, or form. I didn't know how. It's the fog of war. You don't know who's on your side or not. And I probably should have been a lot more aggressive with that on the inside. It might have saved us uh, some aggravation. And the other thing was, um, and Daniel's probably going to talk about this, the, on the February 18th, when the police started cracking down, I got a telephone call from our lawyer, who we don't oh, know whose side I he was. was. right about this. Salman and I were right. Salman and Daniel were right. Uh, I got a, a call from this lawyer who was helping to subvert us and end the protest. And he said, you know, BJ, you got to leave. I'm like, what do you mean you got to leave? Well, Tamara's been arrested. Um, and by the way, I still don't have an answer. There's a video Bridget has posted online that they recorded of Tamara going to the police asking to be arrested. I don't want to understand what sort of protest goes to the police and asks to be arrested or if there's a warrant out for them. It's crazy. I'll send you the link. Uh, there's a lot more unanswered questions that are going to come out, I'm sure. But 
he said to me, you got to leave. Tamara's been arrested. Uh, Chris has been arrested. And the police are cracking down. And they want everybody out of the red zone. Now, it might have been sound legal advice. I don't know. Typical with him, right? Like all con artists, there's always 30% truth to it, right? Uh, but he convinced me over 15, 20 minutes. He was on the phone saying, you got to leave. You got to leave. Well, let me finish. You got to leave. You got to leave. Let me, you know, whatever, right? And I'm like, okay, fine. I finally said, I can't get out of here. Like, I, I, I have a broken ankle. He said, figure out a way. All right, I'll see if I can get an Uber. He convinced me because he did the, you know, they, everybody's been arrested. Somebody has to be able to speak up for freedom. I didn't know they were trying to throw me under the bus. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll see if I can get an Uber. If I can get an Uber, I'll leave the hotel. But I'm like, I said to him, I don't think they're going to break down the hotel doors to arrest me. Like he was getting out of you the know. red zone. I'm just going to clarify. Like the red zone was this sort of emergency area thing. Yeah, where it, it was it was, it was North Korea. No rules apply. Like people could just be grabbed and beaten. I live streamed it. There was yeah. a restaurant. Like that's, that's a whole right. other thing. So he, he was just like, leave the red zone, right? So get out of the, the place where laws doesn't apply. Because if you're in the red zone, they could just grab you and take you. So BJ went out of the red zone. And... We, me and my friend Salman, who is a political prisoner, were saying, don't do that. You're fine in the hotel room. You have a broken ankle. They don't have a warrant to come in here anyway. They're trying to set you up. Like the second you leave, they're going to play the narrative that the so what happened away. as soon as so what I did after all the road captains said they want to leave or whatever, um, I went on to Twitter and I posted a tweet saying, you know, many of us I should have done a thread to explain it in more detail, but I was trying, you know, chaos, lots of things going on. I basically, I indicated that many of us are leaving now Ottawa. Uh, we've won, and uh, but it's time to leave. Uh, we don't want people to get hurt. So who retweets that immediately? Keith Wilson, our lawyer, his best friend, Ezra Levant, retweets it immediately. And, it's, and he said, it looks like you ran away. It was a setup. That's exactly what it was. And ever since then, they all collectively have continually tried to defame me as many as much as possible. Because again, even, I don't the do lawyer, the lawyer, the lawyer even claims he stole the Bitcoin, even though we have on the record where the Bitcoin is, right? Part of it is frozen by the government and they hold those five Bitcoins. And the other 850,000 was individually distributed to people. And also he was one signature on the multi-sig wallet, not of five. So he couldn't have possibly done it. They were his lawyers at some point and then they lied about him at the poc right after evidence was put up there so it, it goes pretty deep on just how and how then much they're willing then to do. 12 months after i can't remember the specific date but well maybe six months ago that lawyer is on a live stream with viva fry and viva fry says you know to dispel some of the rumors Ben's not a Fed. He's not an operative and whatever. And Keith Wilson says, no, he's not. But I can tell you exactly why he left the hotel. Because I called him and I asked him to leave. And he didn't want to leave. He didn't even have an exit strategy. He was going to stay there until everybody. I wanted to be the last person there. Which, by the way, I end up, ended up being the last person there. Because I stayed in Ottawa until March 9th. March, yeah, when I got my ankle off. No, March 15th. Well, I got my cast off. Um, so, yeah, that's the disinformation campaign. Notice, by the way, Viva Fries never had me on, never had me on to talk about my book, never to explain anything. But he has Keith Wilson on all the time and all the people who subverted us has them on frequently. What does that tell you? Remember I told you about stakeholders and that stakeholder document? 
I'll send it to you. Take a look. It's fascinating. Oh, I will. Uh, I, I want to know. But uh, but you know what? It, 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 this is such an interesting thing for me from an outsider's perspective because I do not understand the nitty-gritty of Canadian politics that well. I don't understand Canadian culture. I look at it as an outsider and sometimes I just feel that uh, the authoritarian impulse yeah. is very dangerous. Now, I'm not someone who's very libertarian in his leanings. I'll be very open. I, I feel the state has a role to play in many ways. But uh, yeah, COVID, to me, it short-circuited many people. It just fried them in the brains. And some people have just been in that mode forever. Some people are- on both On both sides, COVID broke people on both sides, where some people just can't get over the fact that the vaccines and they're screaming about this and that. And other people can't get over the fact that, oh, there were dissidents out there, unbelievers, heretics are among us. Non-believers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I explained this on Michaela Peterson's podcast. And I think this is kind of, this is, I think, how we could close off with, you know, the, the philosophy in which we all look at the world, where we're being propagandized and to have a bifurcated view of either one option A or option two, which I think is, that's a big part of what's destroying Western society right now. And from my perspective, you know, I build upon something Scott Adams, who I've gotten to know, talks about. And my interpretation is this. I like the goals of the left. They want to help people. They want to do good and whatever. Yeah, I like that. I like the systemization of the right, that we have to have systems and organized structures in order to achieve those goals. And then I like the libertarianism of uh, or the freedom of libertarianism. And depending on what the issue is, I'm going to plot differently within that triangle. And I think that applies to all of us. We all have emotional causes that are more endeared to us, that we want to help more. But then we all have causes that we're like, I don't really understand it. Let's defer to what the system says we should do. And there's other things when we see creeping authoritarianism we go way over towards the libertarian side of, no, this needs to end. And if we start looking at each other in that way as individuals that will plot differently on these uh, different issues, then it becomes a lot easier to understand each other and engage in a conversation with people whom we disagree. I think uh, I couldn't have put it better. I think this is the issue that... the the. The basic lens with which we look at the world has to change from the group to the individuals. Right. And it's very interesting, you know, the Western and Eastern culture. I always say this, Eastern cultures are very group thinking politically, hmm. but very individualistic spiritually. Hmm. Very individualistic. Because when you are a Hindu, it's your own karma. Hmm. It's not a collective karma. Unlike the Western religions, which includes... Fascinating. There is a collective sin, right. an eternal damnation, but it's very individualistic politically. The solution yeah. for the world is Eastern spirituality and Western political. I, that's, I, very that, that's, that's, I am going to be thinking of that after this. No, that, 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 that is, no, uh, you, you got my brain working. I see why you're popular in India. Yeah, I see this. No, this is, uh, no, uh, that's something that I, that, that I need to think more about before I even respond to, because it was, I, I agree. And it's very fascinating. Yeah. The, yeah. Because that's the one psychological thing like we actually have is like, oh, Westerners think more individualistic about things and Easterners view things more through collective. Uh, you can a analyze like Japanese heroes versus American heroes in a lot of way. But yeah, the spirituality, like the other, the added element of the religious aspect where our religions are very collective, like that's where we get our collectivism from, is from our religions. 
That's and right. you get it sort of maybe from your politics, but then you get your individual individualism from the religion. No, okay, that, this this is this is this is something Daniel's that we'll thinking talk about. out loud. Daniel's right thinking now. out loud right now. Um, so, so stop. Yeah, so we'll end over here. But Benjamin, uh, once again, thank you for coming on the podcast and always a pleasure talk. And don't forget to get a copy of Honking for Freedom, honkingforfreedom.com. Do you have Amazon in India? All right, so no excuses. I, I want to see people in India understanding the truth of what, because this will give you an idea when you're in the face of authoritarian creep, how you should behave together. And if there's one culture that's going to understand the overall message in that, it's Indian cultures. So guys, we'll wrap it up once again. Uh, whenever you, if you're listening to the audio version or you're watching this on YouTube, in the description, you'll have all the social media details, whether it's uh, Benjamin's Twitter, uh, Daniel's Twitter, or the link to buy the book. I bought the one on Kindle because I'm a Kindle guy. But uh, I mean, if you are a hard copy person, the hard copy is also available in India. But uh, And I've been doing book signings in the United States. I'm going to be doing another one in the United Kingdom soon. Uh, if there's enough interest and there's people that want to bring me there, then I would be open to going to India. That would be great. It'd be uh, an honor for me. Great. So, so you know how to get in touch with Benjamin. But once again, uh, always remember that this podcast is known for uh, its uh, aversion to the authoritarian impulse. I've always, I mean, I get a bad name in India because I, I'm a free speech absolutist, uh, and and Indians hate me for that because Indians, in that sense, uh, they. I mean, that's for another day. We'll yeah, not talk about it. Next, third podcast. Yeah, so yeah, so we'll not talk about that. But once again, guys, follow them on social media. And as you guys know with me, this is a member-driven podcast. I don't do any ads because they say I cannot talk about religion, especially considering the Indian sensibilities. So I don't do ads. I get offered ads. I don't do them. So I rely on a membership program. So if you can, do support the Charwak podcast. And I'll leave you guys at there. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye.